All right. So I'm just going to get right out in front of it. Um, I'm like a, a little out of sorts. Uh, I, we had a couple friends come visit this morning, and um, that just threw me for a loop because I didn't know they were coming. And it actually got me kind of choked up because, like, these are dear friends who I love, and there's just something so beautiful about the family of God. And so that's why I'm all out of sorts. So I apologize for that. But thanks for uh, making this a rough Sunday. All right. So there's this scene up on the stage. Um, there's this scene at the end of the book of Genesis where Joseph's brothers, uh, the ones who sold him into slavery and then told their father that he was dead, they come to him and they're scared. They come to Joseph because they believe he's going to take revenge on them. So they make up a story and they plead their case to which Joseph responds, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus, he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Now, for those of you who don't know that story, the evil that was meant against him was his brothers selling him into slavery and lying about his death. But the good that God accomplished through him was the salvation of Israel. Now, the story of Joseph is one of those where we see Jesus written all over it. Our passage this morning looks very much like the story of Joseph where wickedness, selfish ambition are used by God to bring about the salvation of Israel and ultimately new life for those of us sitting here some 2,000 years later. So to borrow the ironic and self-indicting words of the high priest Caiaphas, it is truly better that one man should die for the people. So with that, let's jump into our text. To quickly recap from last week, we were introduced to Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. For the Marthas in the room, there was some vindication for you. We saw a faithful woman who, regardless of her circumstances, entrusted herself to Jesus. The faith that she embodied is a faith that moves beyond following Jesus simply for the gifts he provides to a place of following Jesus because he is worth following. We were also introduced to some of Mary's shortcomings. Sure, she sat at the feet of Jesus back in Luke chapter 10 while Martha was busy doing who knows what, but when the pain of this life crashed headfirst into her story, anger and doubt started to creep in. But God's grace is so good. And we saw that in how Jesus moved toward her. He didn't condemn her. He didn't reprimand her, but rather he welcomed her. And the beautiful part, if you remember, he joined her. He joined her in anger, in lament. Upon seeing the pain of that his friend's death was causing to those he loved, Jesus became enraged to the point that he might have even been shaking. That's the kind of emotion that he was exhibiting. And if you remember, the sort of weeping that Jesus experienced is the sort we might experience upon learning of yet another school shooting. He's responding to how pervasive The wickedness of sin is within his very good creation. Which brings us to verse 38. It says this, Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone laid against it. we got to stop here. Because I think John wants us to stop here. This term, this deeply moved term, it shows up only five times in the New Testament, Twice in John, we looked at it last week, 
and only one other time in the book of Daniel. Upon coming to the tomb of his friend Lazarus, staring at this cave with the stone lying against it, Jesus is again enraged. So if we weren't convinced that death is horrific and that the evil of sin in this world that has ushered in death breaks the heart of God, John doubles down. He doubles down. He says, again, Jesus is enraged. Again, he's trembling with anger. If I'm honest, there was a moment this week while I was studying, in fact, just a few seconds before I wrote out this paragraph, that I was struck with how flippant I can be when it comes to my own sin. And, and chances are I'm not the only person in this room that, that struggles with this. And, and what, what was so overwhelming about this particular verse is that it forces us to sit in how Jesus responds to the effects of sin in this world. Outrage and grief. Outrage and grief. But, but, but what's so cool about this is that he doesn't just stay there. Right? If we remember that the tears he cried, they pushed him to action. They pushed him to action. He didn't just sit back and say, you know what, like, I'm angry, I'm, gonna, I'm just gonna, I'm gonna blow my top and that's it, I'm done. No, he moves toward the brokenness. He moves toward death. Let's keep reading, verse 39. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor for he has been dead for days. And that's just a reminder that he's really dead, right? Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? That if you believed, you would see the glory of God. So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. Now check this out. Right? Notice Martha's response. Jesus says, take away the stone, and she's like, whoa, 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 no time out. He's been dead for a while. Four days. Again, reminding us, he's really dead. And as we talked about last week, he's not mostly dead. He's all dead, completely dead. And so she's like, whoa, there might be an odor. Is this a lapse of faith? I think the answer is yes. I think there is a little bit of a lapse of faith, which, which I think is important because last week we saw this beautiful faith of Martha. And this week we're reminded that even in the midst of having this beautiful faith, like we're going to fumble the ball. We're going to fumble the ball. But God is gracious, right? He doesn't, again, bring the hammer down on Martha. He reassures her. Did I not tell you? In other words, Martha, remember what we just talked about? And remember how you said you trusted me? Well, now's the time. Now's the time. As I was working through this, I was reminded of the anxiety a child feels when they first decide to jump into the deep end of the pool. You could be standing there with your arms open, but often it takes a few minutes for them to remember that they trust you. To remember that they trust you. And I'm, I'll be sitting there, like Joshua, Joshua will be there, like, and, and my, my, my in-law's pool is five feet deep, so it's not deep for me, but it's deep for him. And I'm sitting there, I'm like, come on, Joshua, jump in. He's like, I'm like, Joshua, when in, in your six years of life have I ever dropped you? Right? Maybe for my other ones, like we dropped them a few times when they were younger, but for, no, but for Joshua... We're committed. <laughs> it's not true. I mean, maybe. It, I mean, <laughs> the text says that they took away the stone. The they is probably referring to the Jewish mourners who were weeping from verse 33. And then Jesus starts talking to his father. And notice what he says. I thank you that you have heard me. 
I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people. I said this for the ones that are around, that they may believe that you sent me. So a couple of observations. First, Jesus does not at any point ask the Father to raise Lazarus from the dead here. And he doesn't do that in this particular point, in this particular verse. In fact, the text seems to imply that the conversation about raising Lazarus, maybe it happened at a later time. I thank you that you have heard me. Maybe it was during that extra two-day period before he came to Bethany. Second, he thanks the Father for hearing him, but then he says he knows that the Father always hears him. He knows that the Father always hears him. And so Jesus' confidence that his Father is always listening, like that's got to encourage us. And, and the reason why, it's twofold. First, in Romans chapter 8, verse 34, the Apostle Paul tells us that Christ Jesus, the one who both died and was raised, is now at the right hand of the Father. And, and what he's doing is he's interceding for us. He's praying for us. He's praying for us. In the same way Jesus prayed for Peter, that his faith would not fail, he's praying that same prayer for us. And, and what we learn from this text is that whenever Jesus, Jesus opens up his mouth to pray, the Father is always listening. And so that means that as Jesus is interceding for us, his Father hears those prayers. So every prayer that Jesus prays for us, the Father's in lockstep, like, yeah, I got you, Jesus. I got you. I got you. Yep, uh-huh. I heard it. I'm in. Yep, let's do it. Let's, yep, let's do it, right? And, and the reason why I know that, that they're in agreement is because this is what we believe as followers of Jesus, as people who, who hold to this book as something that we trust, is that, that the Father and the Son, they always are in agreement with one another. Like, they don't, they don't be like, like, it's not like, it's not like Jesus is saying like, hey, hey, I want to, I want to pray for, you know, I want to, I want to pray for Pete. And, and the father's like, nah, nah, you should pray for someone else today. I, I'm not really into, like, no, that's not how it works. Like, they're always in lockstep with one another. Second, those of us who are in Christ, meaning those who have entrusted ourselves to Jesus, who have brought, been brought into union with him, we have been given all things. We are his younger siblings. Jesus is our older brother. And that means we have the same father. And that means that our father, who are in heaven, is always listening to us. That's good news. That's really good news. Right? As, as a church who, who is really trying to, to push prayer to the front of everything that we do, who's trying to cultivate this spirit of prayer in our midst, this is the confidence that we have as we enter into the presence of God. He's always listening. He's always listening. Because we're in Christ. You catch that? That's so important. That's so important. This is the reality of what it means to be a Christian, a follower of Jesus, a member of the family of God. And, and I actually think that, that recognizing our adoption, recognizing that we're a part of a family, because sometimes we say, like, yeah, I'm a Christian, or, or yeah, I follow Jesus, but, but knowing that we actually belong to the family of God, there's something different there. Like, language matters, right? It matters how we, how we speak to ourselves, how we think about ourselves. And, and just recognizing myself as a Christian, that's beautiful, that's wonderful. But recognizing myself as a child of God, 
and, and a younger sibling of Jesus, there's just a little bit more oomph to that. It just feels a little bit more present. It feels a little bit more like right here, because like, we actually have experienced that. We have brothers and sisters. We have parents. And, and some of those relationships might be broken, but the beauty of the family we're adopted into is that our father is God himself, and, and he's making all things new, right? And so there is something beautiful about recognizing that, that position that we have as as children of God, as siblings of Jesus. And, and his ears are always longing to hear our voice. They're always longing to hear our voice. We have boundless access to God. Now finally, notice why he's speaking out loud. Jesus is intentionally allowing the crowd to eavesdrop on his conversation. He wants or he hopes for them to believe that the Father sent him. And truth be told, John includes this in his gospel because he also wants all of us to listen in on this conversation so that we too might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Savior of the world, the resurrection, and the life. If you remember, that's why John's gospel was written, so that we might believe, so that we might believe. So he gets everybody's attention by having this strange conversation which, which looks like he's talking to nobody and then he cries out with a loud voice. And, and the text actually, is, it's probably better translated, he shouted. Like he's shouting, Lazarus, come out. Like he's making a scene. He's making a scene. He wants everybody to know what's going on. Right? He wants everybody to hear it. And, and I'm reminded, like growing up, like, and, and I love my mother, but she's louder, and, and so am I, right? Like we're, it's just part of being Italian, growing up in New Jersey, New York, whatever. We're just loud. And, but when you're a kid, when you're a kid, you don't want your mother to be loud. Why? Because it, it makes a scene. And now I enjoy making scenes to embarrass my own children. It's just, it's a rite of passage. But the point is, is that he is making a scene. He wants everybody to hear what's going on. And then check this out, verse 44. The man who had died came out. Like, right there. Like, wait, what? The man who had died came out. But like, he was dead? Yeah, yeah, four days. So what does that mean? That means that even in their culture where like, if you were dead for only three days, maybe you can come back to life because, you know, the soul hangs around the body. We talked a little bit about that last week. But like, it's very good chance that, that this guy might start smelling a bit. That's what Martha was worried about. But it says... The man who had died came out. Because it's a miracle. That's what's happening here. That's what we're looking at. A genuine, bona fide miracle. He was dead, and now he's alive. The man who was dead came out. And his feet and his hands were bound with linen strips, and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Now at this point... All sorts of dots are clicking and connecting in Martha's brain, right? It's like, oh, so that's what you meant when you said your brother will rise again. And Jesus might even be thinking like, yeah, that's what I meant, but that's not entirely what I meant. Like, there's more to the story, but we're going to get there. Now, the comical part to this scene is that Lazarus is wrapped up pretty tight. His, his hands and feet are bound. His face is covered. Like, he's hopping. I'm not going to do it. I'm not a, I'm not a... He's hopping out of the cave. It's funny. You're allowed to laugh. Now, to overly spiritualize this a bit, but I actually don't think I am, Lazarus is now fully alive, right? He's alive. But he's still wearing his grave clothes. 
He's still wearing his grave clothes. His hands and his feet are bound. He probably can't see very well because there's a cloth covering his face. What's my point? This paints such a vivid picture of what it means to be a follower of Jesus, what it means to be a child of God. Like, aren't we all still wearing some of those grave clothes? Are we not still bound to habits, thoughts, actions, and views that are all marked by death? That's what they are, right? That's what they are. They're marked by death. Are we not all hobbling through or hopping through the Christian life trying to remain faithful? But look at what Jesus says. He says, unbind him and let him go. Now, I imagine he's talking to the crowd, and and among the crowd is Mary and Martha, but I think his disciples are with him as well. And so the things that stood out to me as I was working through this was, one, how much we need one another to help us grow in our walks with Jesus. We need faithful brothers and sisters to unbind us and let us go. We're saints who still speak with the accent of a sinner, and that's the guy who said it. He's here. He came and visited. That's the one I always quote. And so we need help in learning this language of faith. And and I don't mean learning how to sound more like an American evangelical, but rather learning how to live and breathe in and through the Holy Spirit of God. And the other thing that stood out was how Jesus enlisted the help of those around him. We say here at Redeemer that we are a people who share together in the life of Christ. Jesus wants our participation. Like he wants us to jump on in. Like the Bible teaches us that we are all ministers of reconciliation. We are all members of this royal priesthood and that we get to participate in the divine nature. This is such an incredible grace. Jesus says like, hey, help me out with this. Help me out in building up your brother and your sister. Help me out in, in encouraging one another um, as you meet together. Help me out. Now, here's the thing, though, right? Before we, we start saying, like, well, John, like, well, why would you try? Like, no, no, no. Like, listen, God doesn't need our help. But you know what's really cool? He enlists our help anyway. I, I'm reminded of, like, when, when us as, as parents or, or grandparents, when we, when we ask our kids to, like, help us with the lawn or help us in the kitchen or help us with a project around the house. Truth be told, it's easier if we don't get their help, right? Right? Some, as they get older, they're more helpful, of course. But in the reality, it's easier for me to, to, to re-sheetrock a wall, even though I haven't done it yet. But it's easier for me to do it. Maybe I would get it done if I got Nathan involved. Um, <laughs> but the point is, is that, that we ask them for help. Why? Because we want them to grow. We want them to learn. We want them to, to, to deepen even their relationship with us. Right? It's not just learning the action. Right? Yeah, I want my kids to become self-sufficient and be able to do the thing, but I want them also to spend time with me so I can spend time with them, and, and along the way, I can pour into them. Right? That's the beauty about, like, you know, theologians call this means of grace. And, and one of the means of grace that, that I, I kind of lean into, and, and this isn't like one of the formal means of grace, but a means of grace is, is when we participate in the work of God, when we serve one another, when we carry one another's burdens. And why is that a means of grace? Because as we do it, not only are we helping one another, not only are we caring for one another, but God is pouring out his grace on us. And he's cultivating our life with him by his spirit. And so, so as we take those steps of faith to, to unbind one another and let each other go, 
God is doing like a twofold work there. He's, he's, he's doing the unbinding that we're participating in, and then he's also unbinding stuff in our own lives. That's good news. That's great news. Like, we got to do that. We got to, like, step into that and recognize, like, this is what God is calling us to. Now, I say all of this because the miracle that has just taken place is a sign. And as we've discussed throughout the course of this series, signs point to something beyond themselves, the thing signified. Now, what I just shared with you are some peripheral observations, even though I think they're massively important and and really helpful and practical. But the primary things that I believe this passage wants to teach us are, one, Lazarus' bodily resurrection, whereby he has been temporarily raised from the dead, and and meaning that this is not the final resurrection. This, This miracle, this resurrection, it's a giant neon sign with an arrow pointing forward to John chapter 20 when Jesus was permanently and bodily resurrected, crushing death to pieces as he buried his heel into the head of the serpent. It's pointing forward. Second, Lazarus' bodily resurrection is also a giant neon sign pointing backward to John chapter 11, verses 25 through 26, where Jesus says to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Again, to remind us, why did John write this gospel? Jesus did many other signs, but these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, that by believing you may have life in his name. That is such good news. That's what Lazarus' resurrection is all about. It's pointing forward to Christ, and it's pointing backward to this John 11 passage. And, and, and the beautiful part is that, that Martha might be a little confused for a second, like, oh, that's what you meant about raising Lazarus from the dead. And, and in my mind, Jesus is like, yeah, 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 but I also mean that what he represents as this resurrected individual is that all of you who entrust yourself to me are going to be raised up on the last day for all eternity. That's the ultimate good that this passage is pointing toward. Because Christ has been raised, we too will be raised on the last day. And we'll be raised bodily. We'll be raised bodily. Like we're going to have these bodies for all of eternity. I don't fully understand what that all means. But I think it's good. Like, I think it's good. And, and we don't have time to really dig too deeply into all of this, but, but this is what, what John is getting at. This is what he wants us to wrap our minds around. Lazarus's death and resurrection is a picture of Jesus' death and resurrection, which ensure that we will also have a death and resurrection, provided we suffer with him, walk with him, believe in him. That's good news. That's good news. Now, Jesus' desire or hope from verse 42, if you remember... I said this on account that the people standing around, that they may believe, right? That was what he was hoping for. It, it materializes almost immediately. Verse 45 through 46, check this out. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary 
and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are we to do for this man performs many signs? Right, so this incredible sign is performed. A dead man has been brought back to life. Now there's no question that he was dead. Why? Because he was dead for four days. And this miraculous event, it provokes two responses. The first is many of the Jews believed in him. They, they had faith. They trusted this. They're like, oh, this is the guy. This is the guy. The second is that some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Now there's a little bit of debate about whether this second group was acting maliciously or if they were simply reporting the events to their local pastors, possibly even looking for an explanation. But, but for me, the context pushes toward malicious just because there seems to be a distinction between good guys and bad guys in this section of John. And so they tell on him, right? They snitch. The other day, you know, Deanna and I are, are downstairs and we hear Joshua and Elizabeth, you know, arguing a little bit. And, and Elizabeth tells us what's going on. And I hear Joshua yell out, why are you always snitching? Which was just hilarious. Like, like what? Like, like, who are you? What's going on? Right? Like, next thing I want to, like, snitches get stitches. Like, it's like, whoa, calm down. Um, <laughs> now, the reason I bring that up, one, the story about Joshua, it's funny. Um, but the reason I bring all this other stuff up is because what we see unfolding is something many of us have probably observed or even participated in. An apparently wonderful work of God is performed. Maybe it's something miraculous. Maybe it's the conversion of someone we would least expect. Maybe it's how a particular group of Christians live out their faith, and instead of celebrating it or allowing this work to deepen our faith, we ridicule it. Now, I'm not saying we shouldn't test things. We should test things. But sometimes our tests are based more on comfort level, culture, and experiences than they are on Scripture. And, and we need to be careful of that. That's just like a little sidebar sort of warning. Like we don't want to be like that other group. We want to believe the things that God is doing in, in and through his people. And sometimes the things that God does in and through his people, they look different than what maybe we might be used to or comfortable with. And so we have to test things as we read the scriptures, but we don't just dismiss things because they look weird or like, ah, I don't want to do that. Like, no, no, no. Like, if it's in the text, like, we can trust it. Like, if, if something's happening and, and it's not like going against what this book teaches, it's like, okay, let's see how this plays out. Now let's keep reading. Verse 47 through 48. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. So this gathering seems to be a formal proceeding of what was known as the Sanhedrin, which was the highest judicial body in the land under Roman authority, who controlled all Jewish internal affairs. It was made up of 71 members, including the high priest. Now they all seem to agree that Jesus was performing many signs. It's like they're all gathering together like, this guy's legit, right? And so like at first you're like, oh yeah, all right, cool. Maybe they're seeing something here. But then there's a concern. If we let him keep doing these legitimate things, everyone's going to believe in him. Like that's, like that's a problem, right? And if we let him continue doing these legitimate things, the Romans are going to come and take away both our place and our nation. So finally, they give up their real motives. 
for all the opposition we've seen throughout the course of John's gospel, they just come right out and say it. We're going to lose all of our influence over the people, and the Romans are going to take away our power and our prestige. That's what they're nervous about. That's what they're concerned for. And it's utterly wicked. They're not concerned about the spiritual well-being of the people of Israel. They're not looking to understand the truth of who this man is. They even acknowledge that he's able to perform miracles, but their positions of influence and power are more important to them than whether or not this man is the one they've been waiting for. The reason why most of them probably got into the religious leader business in the first place. But this is what happens. This is what happens when evil gains a foothold. The same evil that Jesus was enraged by just a few verses back is the evil that has now permeated the hearts of these religious people, these religious leaders. As one commentator puts it, these serious men. There's a word here for us. These religious leaders, these people of the book, they have clearly forgotten their role. They have become obsessed with their positions. They've grown insular in their understanding of what it means to be a member of the family of God. Notice what it says in verse 48. It's our place, which is most likely a reference to the temple, and our nation that they're concerned about. First of all, the temple belonged to God. It was a place built for worship. And the nation, it was established with the purpose of being set apart, holy, so that the surrounding world might catch a glimpse of what God is like. When God called Abraham, he said, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. So that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. We're looking at, these are the families of the earth right here. And the vision that God had for this nation, even while they were in exile, it stretched beyond their borders. It is too light a thing, it says in Isaiah 49. It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. Just Israel? No, no, we're going global. We're going global. Like it's actually, it's, it's too little of a thing to just save this group of people. I want to save the entire world, right? For God so loved the world. Redeemer, this is what Jesus set out to accomplish, and he's been accomplishing it for over 2,000 years. The temptation we all need to fight against. It's the temptation to become like those 71 religious leaders. Specifically, it's a temptation to adopt an us versus them posture where we see the world out there as enemies instead of lost sheep, where we care more about preserving our nation, our way of life, over extending the hope of the kingdom of God, where we forget that the Savior we follow was one who came in weakness, who gave of himself daily, and who ultimately laid his life down on a cross so that we might go free. Right, that's good news. And all the other stuff that we get ourselves wrapped up in, there's nothing news, good newsworthy about it. It's a distraction. It makes us look like fools. Right? Have this mind 
in you, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who because he was in the form of God, he didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Like he wasn't looking to exploit who he was, right? And, and, and that's us. Like we got to take that posture. We can't look to exploit this thing we call Christianity so that we might have some sort of like political gain or some sort of cultural gain. Like that's not the purpose of the church. Our purpose is to proclaim the kingdom of God the good news of Jesus, that in him there is life. It's not to proclaim a particular political platform. It's not to, to particular, um, proclaim a particular set of cultural values. It's to preach Jesus and then to look like him as we're preaching him, right? Like the, because sometimes what ends up happening is, is a lot of people are preaching Jesus, but, but then they're look, they look like something very different. Or... They're doing wonderful, beautiful things, but like they never open up their mouths about Jesus, right? Like both of those streams have to come together. They have to. And, and for us, who, who are in the stream of American evangelicalism, right, we've been fed a lot of lies. We've been fed a lot of ideas that, that, are, that are labeled mission, that are labeled values that we ought to espouse, and, and, and they're not. And I'll let you use your imagination. I don't have to go through a list of things, but, but we all come from the same stream, We've all drank of the same waters, and we got to fight. we got to fight that temptation to become like those religious leaders, those 71 Sanhedrin, those very serious men that we read about throughout the Gospel of John. Like, we need to look like something that's a little bit different. And again, I'll say it, and I've said it over and over again. Read the Sermon on the Mount. Read the Sermon on the Mount. Those are our marching orders, and they're beautiful. They're beautiful. Now, now check this out, right? This is cool. This is where it starts getting, getting fun. I mean, it's been fun, I guess, right? Up to you. you. You tell me. Verse 49, but one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all. What a guy. Nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God, who are scattered abroad. So from that day, they made plans to put him to death. Now, this is one of those John moments that we've been talking about over the course of the series. And I think it might be one of the most profound John moments we come across. Notice Caiaphas's tone. You know nothing at all, nor do you understand. Right? In other words, you're a bunch of idiots. Right? What a guy. Really, just... Just a couple of interactions we have with Caiaphas throughout the Gospels. He just sounds like a miserable human being, right? Like someone that I would not want to work for nor work with. Um, but I digress, right? What's more important is his unintentional yet massively profound word of prophecy. It is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. And then John goes on to interpret. He did not say this of his own accord, right? What this doesn't mean Caiaphas is not merely a puppet here. His intended meaning is that killing this guy, Jesus, will keep them in power. But God is whispering beneath the noise. And similar to the story of Joseph and his brothers, what was intended for evil, God is repurposing and redeeming for good. And not only for the good who reside from within the borders of Israel, but all of God's children who have been scattered abroad. In other words, and we said it before, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish 
but have eternal life. Caiaphas, the villain of this passage, is preaching the good news of Jesus. Did you catch that? And not only is he preaching the good news, but verse 53 seems to indicate that he's orchestrating the plans to bring it about. It's wild. This passage is dripping with irony, but more importantly, it's dripping with hope. Because the one who they are planning on putting to death is the one who has tangibly and powerfully demonstrated his power over it. Right? Which is like, you're trying to kill the guy who just showed you that death doesn't have any power over him. They're so blinded by their desire to maintain power, to maintain their influence, to maintain their position, that they don't recognize that maybe killing won't work. Because that doesn't seem to, to have, an, like, dead bodies don't seem to bother Jesus. He just, he lifts them right up. But they just, they just keep moving forward, right? Right, because they're obsessed with whatever story they're a part of. And we get obsessed with whatever story or tribe or voices that we want to be a part of. And we just, we just, keep, we, we just keep going like a bull seeing red. And we forget that, no, 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 there's a gospel that we're to be about. There's a kingdom that we're to be about. That's what John's pounding away at here. Like, don't be like these guys. Like, and these guys aren't idiots. They know the Bible better than anyone in this room. Better than anyone in this room, but they are blind. They are blind. They don't get it because they are obsessed, honestly, with themselves, with their selfish ambition with the desire to get the thing that they want, to maintain their way of life, whatever, however you want to word it. And we see this all over the place. And sadly, we see it in this country, because this is really the only country I'm fully aware of, and not even that fully aware of, but you know, Jersey is kind of where I keep my focus. <laughs> but like, we do the same thing, and then we slap a Jesus fish on it, and we call it Christian. We gotta fight that temptation. We have to. The kingdom of God is bigger than all of it and way more important and way more powerful. And so the passion of our Lord begins. Verse 54. Jesus therefore no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim, and there he stayed with the disciples. So while it's true that the plot to kill Jesus has begun, the father and the son still hold all the cards. By retreating to Ephraim, a town about 12 miles from Jerusalem, Jesus demonstrates that he's the one in control of his own destiny. He also demonstrates that he somehow learned of the plot. Maybe someone informed him, maybe he just knew, or maybe his father revealed it to him. Either way, the ball is in his court. Verses 55 through 56. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, what do you think, that he will not come to the feast? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so they might arrest him. So words out. Jesus is a marked man. This is the third Passover mentioned in John's gospel, and it will be Jesus' final Passover. Passover is the day when the Jewish people celebrate how 
God rescued Israel from Pharaoh. On that day, the people of Israel were instructed to sacrifice a lamb, take its blood, and spread it on the doorposts of their homes. And this act of faith saved their firstborn from death, and it led to their redemption. But see, on this Passover, this Passover, God's firstborn would not be spared. God's firstborn would not be spared. Because God's firstborn is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In the words of John, do you believe this? Do you believe this? Redeemer, this is the gospel, right? This is the story that marks out who we are. This is the story of King Jesus. And to quote Philippians 2 again, who because he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he made himself nothing, taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. And just as Lazarus was raised from the dead, Jesus was raised to new life, crushing death to pieces, and now God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And what that means for us, those of us who have entrusted ourselves to Jesus, it can be summed up in the words from 1 Corinthians 15, for as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the first fruits, then it is coming, those who belong to Christ. That's, that's us. That's us. Then the end comes when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. Because he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. That's what raising Lazarus is all about. And it's good news. It's really good news. And it's the sort of news that, that not only gains us access to Jesus, but it keeps us sustained as we follow him. And it's the sort of news that if we really truly entrust ourselves to it, we will start allowing ourselves and allowing one another to unbind us and, and disconnect us from all the other stories that are trying to get at us. All the other ideas, all the other gospels, if you will, that are trying to save us. The more we entrust ourselves to Jesus, the more we commit to one another in the local body here at Redeemer Fellowship, the more we're going to be unbound. The more we're going to give that time and space for the Spirit of God to work in and through us, conforming us more and more to the image of Jesus. That's good news. That's really good news. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we love you with all of our hearts and we thank you for your grace. We thank you for the gospel. Lord, I need you more than anything, Lord God. I know that. I recognize that on a daily basis. I pray that all of us would recognize how deeply we need you. We need that new life, Lord God. Father, we need help 
unbinding ourselves from, from, those, from those death clothes, Lord God, those garments of death, Lord God. And Father, they can be difficult to get off, Lord. They stick, they're uncomfortable, sometimes they're more comfortable than they should be. Um, but help us, Lord, help us, give us eyes to see, um, give us people, Lord, who can help us get rid of it, Lord, so that we might walk freely. We're not hopping around, Lord God. Father, we love you with all of our hearts. We thank you for your son, Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.